Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, many of you will be aware Ian Bailey, the chief suspect in the murder of Sophie Toscan Duplantia way back in 1996, died this week at the age of 66. He was subsequently cremated in Cork at a ceremony that was reportedly attended only by officials from the crematorium. Mr Bailey was a highly controversial figure. He was arrested twice for the murder of Miss Duplantia and he was also prosecuted for assaulting his partner at the time, Jules Thomas. Their 30-year relationship ended in 2021. Many people, I think it's fair to say, are convinced that Bailey was guilty of murder. Many others said that he was the victim of garden malpractice in which he was effectively framed. It should be said that Bailey took a civil action against the state for wrongful arrest, which he lost. That was one of the longest-running civil actions in the history of the state. Now, one major bone of contention for some is that Bailey was never actually charged with the murder, despite the Gardaí compiling a huge file in him and the DPP considering at least three times whether he should be prosecuted. And each time the DPP decided against it. One person who believes that he should have been charged is my guest today. Nick Foster is a journalist who has written a detailed account of the case and particularly the evidence against Bailey. Murder at Roaring Bay, the inside story of the death of Sophie Tuscan Duplantier is the title of Nick's book. I have to say it has to be recommended to anybody who has an interest in this case. Nick, you're very welcome to the podcast. Hi Mick, thanks very much for having me. Good morning. Nick, first of all, could I ask you how you came to the case? Well, I first heard about the case in uh, 1997. I was uh, living in Belgium at the time. That's where I live now. And um, I heard about it on the TV news in in French. And um, what I remember was uh, images of uh, Ian Bailey being being arrested and the sense, the fairly clear sense from French news, that this um, emerging story would would reach a fairly rapid conclusion. I mean, clearly, after all these years, it, it, it didn't. But that was certainly uh, what I felt and what I understood when I first heard about the case. After that, um, I got in, involved in other true crime stories and um, fast forward a little bit to um, 2014, so just under, yeah, just under uh, 10 years ago, when, as you'll remember, when, when, when Mr. Bailey um, sued the Irish state and the Garda Shikhana and Irish friends... Um, in Brussels, where I was living, said to me, you've really got to look at this case. It's the Sophie Toscan Duplantier case. It's notorious in Ireland. A lot of people are talking about it, particularly now because uh, it's, it's in the news. And I, um, I found out that Mr. Bailey was going to take the stand at the four courts. And I think that was on a, I think it was on a Thursday or a Friday. And I, you know what, I booked a ticket immediately to come to Dublin. I was, I was determined to see him under cross-examination in a courtroom, and I thought that um, it would be an experience that would tell me if I could write a newspaper or a magazine feature on the story, because that's what I was thinking of doing at the beginning, was simply to write a, a, a fairly short piece on the story. And I realised that there was so much more to it. The um, Seeing Mr Bailey take the stand, it was, it was so fascinating. And I realised that the story was, as it had been advertised, let's say, um, a big one. Yeah, so you saw him take the stand there and, and and your interest obviously grew. I mean, I'd have to say myself, I remember that occasion when he took the stand in the civil action and it was very interesting. But just for my own interest in the case, roll it back uh, 11 years and he took the stand in a libel action in Cork in 2003. And I have to say, he was eviscerated by the senior counsel for the newspapers, Paul Gallagher, who went on to be an attorney general. And I, I think an awful lot of people would have come away from that libel action in particular believing 
that Bailey had definitely some uh, involvement in the murder of Sophie Tuscan Duplanty. However, that it was a civil case and that was people's opinions and that doesn't say anything. But from your point of view, just just go through this first of all. So you got an interest in and you met Bailey and did you get to know him? I did. I, I, I met um, Bailey at, at the four courts. So I was sitting perhaps with you as well on, on the press benches watching this. Um, this man, um, given an explanation of, of the reason why he was taking the guards and, uh, and the Irish state to, uh, to court. And um, I have to say as well, the first impression I got was, and it was a very clear impression, was that he was enjoying it, that he was enjoying the spectacle, he was enjoying being the centre of attention. I thought that the, the case that he was bringing was rather flimsy. What was more interesting was the way that he was presenting himself, uh, the way that he used humour, the way that he, he, he portrayed himself as the kind of little guy fighting for justice, um, the way that he tried to convince um, everybody in the courtroom. And we played, you know, you played to the public gallery, but in a way that seemed to make sense. You know, he portrayed himself as as the little guy fighting the whole machinery of a of a Western European state. But here's the thing: when he wasn't taking the stand, I was also looking at him, and he just looked bored. And even when, for instance, his partner, Jules Thomas, was under cross-examination, I caught him yawning a few times. And I thought, this is very strange. He, he, he seems to withdraw from the proceedings when he's not the centre of attention. So that was fascinating. It wasn't, it wasn't at all difficult, of course, to, to um, introduce myself to, to Ian Bailey um, during a recess. And um, we, within a few days, we had, um, we had dinner together with Jules Thomas. I had the chance to... Um, to get to know him a bit more. And I realised that, that, you know, as, as plenty of our Irish friends have been telling me, this was a big, complicated case. It was fascinating. But I also knew that if I was going to research it, I had to get an invitation back to the prairie near Skull, where, where, where Bailey lived. And I had to try to um, research the story from the inside out. Because I'm an outsider and I... You know, I, I got so much from your reporting, Mick, so much from Ralph's reporting, Ralph Regal, Senator Maloney. It, you, you know, you were the guys on the ground. You followed the case. I, I was an outsider. I'd never been to Ireland before. I'd been to the North once. But the, the, the day I flew into Dublin to rush to the four courts to sit on the press bench was the first time I'd been to the Republic. So I was absolutely an outsider. I was here to uh, learn not just about the case, obviously, that was the main thing, but also about the context of the case, the context of the case, the, the, the criminal justice system in your country. And um, I knew that if I was going to um, add any kind of value to the story in the form of a book, for instance, it would be because I, was, I wanted to get close to Bailey and I wanted to tell the story from his domestic setting outwards, if that makes, if that makes sense. Absolutely, and, and your, your point about the outsider is very well made too, Nick, because I think it's fair to say that very often in cases like this or other cases, somebody coming in completely with clean hands, so to speak, a, a, a fresh eyes, can often give a perspective that those who are around it too close, you know, we all form unconscious biases or whatever as time goes on. So that, that's definitely interesting. Now... In getting to know Bailey, as I understand it, he agreed at one point to give you... He had to guard a file on him and he agreed to give you that. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So I realised that if I was going to make any headway at all, I needed the I needed the witness statements that were in what Bailey memorably called um, 2,000 pages of rumours. That's what he, how, he, how he termed it in the full courts. But I needed to, to see that. And there was no way forward for me, um, realistically, without managing to see the case against uh, Ian Bailey as it was as you know as it was in the in the Garda file the Garda file contains something like 670 uh, witness statements and and, and it, it, I found it fascinating to try to kind of create a narrative out, that, out of that and to put it together because the witness statements are listed in alphabetical order you have to establish for yourself the chronology you have to establish for yourself the um You'd have to fit it all together, the value of, 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 of the witness statements. I mean, clearly not all of them were important, but some of them were very important. Sometimes um, witnesses were interviewed four, five, six, even seven times over. 
Um, but it was my job to put all that together and to make sense of it. And um, it took me a while, but I certainly got to the position where I thought, you know what, the evidence in this, in, in, in this God of Fire is really very strong. I would say there were two main areas where it was strong. The scratches on, on Bailey's hands and, and a gash on his forehead that he had hours after the murder didn't have you know, any of that before. And he, he went to a bar, he was playing a drum night before the murder. Uh, there are plenty of witnesses, half a dozen witnesses, in fact, who say, no, he, he didn't have any scratches visible um, that evening. And that was mere hours before the crime. Uh, there's also a, a raft of evidence that suggests Bailey knew about the crime before he was um, um, officially informed. And I think that the, the detail of that evidence, uh, first of all, it's absolutely fascinating, but it's also something that made me think, you know what, this should go to trial. The, it, it's substantial enough to go to trial. And it's absolutely right that it should have been um, a, a jury of Irish women and Irish men who decided on the guilt or innocence of Ian Bailey. And I think we've got to the point where, because there wasn't a trial in Ireland, um, you have these documentaries, you have several books that came out, uh, well, there's mine, uh, Ralph Regal's, um, Mick Sheridan as well, a good friend of mine. Uh, all of this happened because there wasn't a trial in Ireland. And I think that this whole case could have been and should have been put to bed, um, you know, several years, several short years after the murder happened. Fair point, Nick, in terms of those treads. And yes, there is that evidence in relation to the scratches. There were there were witnesses in the pub who said there was no scratches. He was playing the Boron, I think it was that night. Something he he, he took great uh, he took great pleasure in doing. And also in terms of telling people before he was officially to know, that's also the case. I mean, I know one of those people, for instance, was a friend of his who, whose brother I happen to know, and Bailey um, phoned him at a time that he estimated, he subsequently gave evidence at the libel trial, that he estimated was earlier than the time that Bailey said he knew of the killing. And that was one of a number of instances like that. Now, as you say, that is certain level of evidence. However, the strongest thread that the Gardaí had in terms of pinning Bailey to the murder was this sighting by a woman, Maria Farrell, um, on the road at about 2am in the morning of the murder, uh, it was at a point that was not directly in the line between uh, Sophie Tuscan Duplantier's home and Bailey's, but, you know, it was a plausible route, albeit a bit roundabout. And Maria Farrell contacted the Gardaí and claimed to have seen him. Now, I think it's fair to say, Nick, that that evidence has been discredited to a large extent over the years, not least through uh, Maria Farrell's own testimony subsequently. That's absolutely the case. And you know what? I mean, I've been critical of, of, of the DPP in, in, in the way that they came to their conclusions on, on the Garda file, um, particularly with respect to um, Bailey's confessions, which we, which we can come to. But as far as Marie Farrell's concerned and as far as the evidence that she, her, her own testimony, that the DPP examined. As far as that's concerned, the DPP is, you know, was bang on the money. Um, the evidence that um, Marie, Marie Farrell could have, let's say, brought to the courthouse was, uh, if Bailey had been, uh, had been put on, on trial for murder, would have been problematic because um, we didn't know, still got no way of knowing, what the passenger in Marie Farrell's car saw that night. Marie Farrell was absolutely clear that she wasn't on her own in the car as she was driving towards Kilfada Bridge, um, direction Skull. She was there with somebody. Um, what, did, what did he see? Did he see anything at all? Did he see him Bailey? Did he see somebody else? And so the, the DPP, I think, was absolutely right to say, you know what, there's a problem. There's an inherent problem in this um, in this piece of testimony. And I thought it was really interesting. We were both there in, in, in Paris at the, uh, at the trial in France. I think it was really interesting that the French prosecutor did choose to make something of that original 
Marie Farrell evidence. Do you remember? And, and that was included in the case against Ian Bailey. And I felt that that was possibly a mistake. What the value of Marie Farrell's evidence is a bit difficult to ascertain over, over all these years. She's retracted it. Uh, you recall she stormed out of a courtroom once. Um, she said in open court that she confuses fact, fact or has confused fact and fiction. Um, so at this point, it's difficult to know what to make of it. However, I was a little bit surprised that the that the prosecution in in Paris at the at the trial there that Mr. Bailey chose not to attend. I was rather surprised that they used that as not a significant plank of the evidence against uh, against Bailey, but as part of the evidence against him. And I thought that that was. That was one of the strange things, let's say. That was one of the strange things. Yeah, well, I have to say, my, and both yourself and myself attended that trial, Nick, and I have to say myself, I didn't think it was strange to this extent. There was so much that was strange about that trial. To me, it fitted into pattern. But we'll come to that trial in a minute. But just going back again to, and going back to your point about your belief the DPP should have prosecuted. So what we're talking about to the largest extent, we're not going into the specific detail, but just to run this by you, we're talking about the scratches, where they came from. We're talking about the fact that he appears to have contacted people before he said he knew that there had been a murder, claiming that there had been a murder, which would suggest knowledge that he hadn't let on before. And there were a few people in that category, even though it was difficult to to, to prove it beyond um, uh, witness testimony because there was no digital technology with phones or whatever. But that is evidence of itself. And the third strand is that he said to a number of people afterwards that he did it, including a 14-year-old boy he gave a lift to and including a couple he was at a party with and everybody had an awful lot of drink taken. Now... In broad terms, Nick, are those the elements, or am I missing out on anything else as well there that would have been in that file that would have gone towards his guilt? Yeah, that's right. I mean, there's obviously the question of, of, of his alibi as well, which was non-existent. And it was rather, uh, it's, it's remarkable that um, he can't account for a, around about seven hours of his movements on that night. And that makes him a, an absolute outlier in, in West Court when the guards were, were, were doing their housewives inquiries, when they were figuring out where... Um, men who were young, middle-aged, um, where they were. I mean, just about everybody had an alibi. They were kind of tucked up in bed, you know, and, um, but he wasn't. So there's, there's that side as well. But just get to back to the, to the confessions. Um, I think that this is really the key point, and it's absolutely the, the difference between the position that the French court took um, it's the, the French court, but also um, the ASOF, so the Sophie Justice Committee. They had access to the files as well, so um, Sophie's family. And um, on the one hand, and the DPP on the other. Uh, I think this is where the DPP made a significant mistake. So just to give you a bit of, a bit of context, the, the, the DPP received from the guards, I think it was a single tape of Bailey speaking. It was a tape that, had been, that they'd got from a, a French journalist, who asked um, Bailey a number of questions. She taped the replies, and the DPP found that Bailey, speaking on this, I think, single tape, they found that he was, quote, credible and convincing. And that seems very odd that they should come to that conclusion on the basis of, I think, just one tape. Uh, on the other hand, and just to contrast that, if we come to the confessions, one of the confessions concerned a gentleman called Shelley, and they the DPP found that his evidence was, quote, dangerously unreliable. And I found that such a, a strange difference to take, you know, such a strange um, position to come to on, on the basis of evidence that, uh, that at first sight seems, seems pretty damning. So the confessions, I think, should have been a matter for an Irish jury. They should have been a matter for an Irish jury. What I think the DPP did was that it jumped in and it um, kind of jumped ahead of itself and it, it, it kind of took decisions which I think were properly the decisions of um, Irish women and Irish men in an Irish jury in a trial on Irish soil. As far as I'm concerned, and again, I, I think that this is, this is what, what certainly came out of the, of the French trial, one area where I do agree with them is that words have meanings. It's absolutely clear to me that 
Bailey was confessing, for instance, when he gave um, a lift home to the 14-year-old boy, and he reported that Bailey said to him that he'd gone up there. Well, I mean, the, I'll spare the, the, your listeners the graphic description of that the, the Bailey gave, but he went up there to the house and bashed her head in with, with a rock. Uh, as far as the Shelleys are concerned, so this was the evidence that um, the DPP classed as being dangerously unreliable. This was a couple who, who got invited back to the prairie by um, Bailey and Jules Thomas, and at some point, um, Ian Bailey, to the slight consternation, I think, of the Shelleys, uh, a couple of little bit, a little bit younger, took out a scrapbook of clippings on the crime, on, on the Sophie murder. And um, after, you know, leafing through these clippings in a scrapbook, uh, Ian Bailey said, I did it, I did it, I went too far. By that time, he was in tears. He was uh, hugging Mr. Shelley. The Shelleys were absolutely, absolutely shocked. The, the point is that the evidence given by the Shelleys to the guards should have been uh, uh, a matter for an Irish court. It's not for the DPP to say, oh, that's dangerously unreliable. I didn't find anything in the, um, in the witness statements given by the Shelleys about that night, about that visit that they made to um, the Bailey household. I didn't find anything in that that was, at first sight, dangerously unreliable. So it, I, I really find it difficult to see how the DPP arrived at that conclusion. Okay, now let me give you an alternative view, Nick. The Gardaí very early on they identified Bailey. They decided they had their man, right? In February 1997, which was just two months after it, in a Garda report to the DPP whom they were urging to prosecute him, they stated to the DPP that it was of the utmost importance that Bailey be charged immediately with this murder as there is every possibility he will kill again. Now, that's putting pressure on the DPP. Okay, that kind of thing happens. However, in the DPP subsequent analysis, they interpreted that as as follows. And and this is what the DPP's office said. Ian Bailey was believed by the public, particularly in the local area, to be responsible for the murder. The fear engendered was bound to create a climate in which witnesses became suggestible. Now, within that context, and I have to say I've seen this in other guard investigations, you have an atmosphere where witnesses are suggestible. Witnesses believe that they know who did it. They believe the guardy are trying to get this person. They, you know, there's, a, a, there's an unconscious element there, possibly among some people. For example, the individuals whom he, he contacted before he was to have known about it, there's no solid evidence there. That was their recollection. Could their recollection, could a time, for instance, in a difference of 30 or 40 minutes, be as a result of a suggestible atmosphere? You've the 14-year-old boy. He went into school the next day and the Gardaí had visited the school at uh, doing uh, nothing untoward on it, but on the basis of their investigations and that. He comes home and he has, has a version of what Bailey said to him. The Shelleys... There was a huge amount of alcohol consumed that night when he made those admissions. Similarly, the witnesses in the pub when he was there with the Bowron. Now, all I can say is, I can't remember, you know, if I was in the pub last night, if somebody was playing a guitar or a Bowron or whatever, that I would noticeably uh, know whether or not there was something unusual on their hands. It's not something that I would take notice of. So, what you have from that person, and Maria Farrell, going back to Maria Farrell, let's discount that, which was the central thread, the only thing that in any realm of possibility connected Bailey to the scene was Maria Farrell, and that's completely discounted. So what you're left with is a number of witnesses, and I'm not disparaging them, all in good faith, I'm sure, that made various statements for the Gardaí and did so in, as the DPP des, uh, described, what you might call a suggestible atmosphere in which there was a general consensus that Bailey was the man and that he better be locked up quicker, somebody else could uh, end up dead. In that context, Nick, I have to say, I don't find the DPP's decision unusual at all. Well, look, um, I take your point that you could have a situation where an atmosphere in a... In, in a uh, a community like that, I mean, this is going back in the day, of course, a fairly fairly isolated community at the time, could be suggestible. 
But I don't see, first of all, the, the, the arguments that you're making are good arguments in favour of a, a trial in Ireland. Because it's, it's precisely the point of a trial to, 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 to nail down the truth amongst all the witness statements, all of the, the, you know, the, the witnesses that presumably would have been called to, um, to attend court and, 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 to, and, to be, and to be subject to cross-examination. So surely it's, it would have been better if those, if those witnesses would have had their claims tested. That's, that, that's entirely the point. And another, um, another thing in parallel to that was a gentleman called Bill Fuller, now you might remember, that he, he did go to France and he did take the stand in the courthouse in France. And I found his evidence uh, in Paris, I suppose it's the kind of evidence that he would have, he would have presented to court had he had the chance to do so in Ireland. But I found it entirely, entirely convincing. He didn't give the impression of being subject to suggestions or, 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 or rumours um, in, 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 in the local community, um, things that might turn him against Mr Bailey. In fact, the impression I get uh, in a general sense from the, um, from the Garda file is of ordinary men and women in West Cork doing what they can a civic duty, I repeat, their civic duty, to assist the guards in, th in their inquiries. And I don't get any sense, any sense at all, in all of the witness statements that I went through several times, that anybody had come forward with information that was bogus, testimony that was fraudulent, or even testimony that was somehow influenced by something in the air, or rumours against Mr Bailey, uh, or even some kind of threats that Mr. Bailey might have made or, or others might have made. What I see in mm. the language that was used and indeed the content of the testimony that's there in the file is people doing their civic duty. I don't see interference, but in any case, in any murder trial, it's for witnesses to be tested when they take the stand. It's for cross-examination to, 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 yeah. to bring about an answer and that's the problem, that the DPP quite simply, first of all, I think the DPP was hopelessly naive in the way that it dealt with these confessions, because the DPP said that it was likely that Mr. Bailey was engaging in what it called black humour, sarcasm. In other words, it was his reaction to all of these um, uh, uh, allegations that, that, that were being made, I mean, notably, notably when he was arrested. Um, I don't buy that for a minute. And what's interesting is, and I think it's, it's, it's a key point, is that none of the people who heard these confessions, Reed, the Shelleys, Fuller, none of these people, none of these people understood it as being anything other than a confession. None of these people understood it as being black humour in any sense. And I'll just say one other thing on this, because I think we can also perhaps usefully broaden the scope of this. Are we really thinking that we've got an innocent man, there's a violent, terrible crime that happened a few short miles away where, where, where he lives, um, and that innocent man, who's already the prime suspect for that crime, goes around in a panic and tells people he's done it and he's innocent. I mean, that configuration of innocence, being a prime suspect and running around in a panic saying, I did it, it doesn't exist. I didn't I haven't found a single case worldwide of that kind of that kind of uh, fantasy, that kind of fantasist. It, it simply doesn't exist. It simply doesn't exist. And it and yeah. it makes no sense. It makes absolutely no sense for the DPP to think that it does exist. They should I, have they should have let an Irish court decide on the validity of the testimony when it comes to Mr. Bailey's confessions. I'm absolutely clear on that. Okay. I mean, I agree with you, Nick, in, in terms of the way Bailey conducted himself and he was, as people describe it, a notice box and he was somebody who enjoyed the notoriety. And I agree with you also that certainly, apart from the guard investigation, nobody else has positively identified another suspect, somebody who could possibly have been there at the time. There was talk at one stage of somebody, Mr. Duplanty, having driven some with somebody down from Cork Airport and that sort of thing. But nobody else has been identified. I agree with you on that. Just and perhaps to defend Mr. Bailey in a sense. I mean, you know, nobody else has been identified. That doesn't mean to say it's Bailey. I mean, the, 
I think uh, you know what I'm, oh, I know. I, yeah, I'm just putting in context. Yeah, yeah. you know, he 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 still has the right to say, well, just because you you know, you know just because I'm the only suspect doesn't mean to say it's me. Uh, it, it's true that it does. It, oh yeah, yeah, really, yeah. No, I, no, I feel no, I no. Even, I, I, I feel, I'm just putting. I feel I should even say. jump in, uh, uh, you know, to, to to defend him from that point of view. But the, 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 right. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I'm just putting it in the context, Nick, of why. Uh, it, it adds to a general opinion as to why he might have been responsible. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Now, just coming back to some of the the points you made about the, the DPP, you have to put this in context too. At the time, in terms of the DPP, the Gardaí, as the I quoted you there, and it was perfectly obvious, they were really put, and they also had their allegations of political interference, they tried to put pressure on the DPP to bring a prosecution. The government would have been thrilled with a prosecution simply because they wouldn't have got any grief from the French and they wouldn't be put under any pressure there and it gets rid of an issue. The public as you said yourself and as the Gartson, largely believed he was guilty. The media, to a large extent, and a lot of their coverage at that time, I think it was before you or me were involved, came largely from Garda League. So the media were on board. So in, in that context, the fact that the DPP did not prosecute despite all of that pressure, despite it being the easiest thing in the world, I think speaks volumes for, for how they how they assess the evidence. One other quick thing, and you mentioned, and it's a very it's a very valid point you make. The evidence is there, why not let a jury decide? Well, we've had scenarios, and there's obvious ones as in the likes of the um the Guildford Four and the Birmingham Six people like that, who were put on trial on flimsy evidence at a time when a public mood, very understandably in Britain at the time after the IRA exploded bombs in public places and murdered dozens of people, very understandably there was a particular mood in the UK at the time that went, I would suggest, towards it making much easier to find these individuals guilty. Similarly, just a, a hypothetical example, let's say in 2008 in this country, I know there was an economic crash everywhere, but it was particularly bad in this country, in Ireland. Let's say a senior banker had been arrested for something on, and put on trial on very flimsy evidence. There's every possibility he would have been convicted and that would be attributable to a certain extent to a huge uh, public mood or whatever that there was at the time. So I think when you put that in context, both the pressure the DPP was under and the fact that the DPP has an obligation, not just to the victim, not just to the public, but also to a potential suspect, that if there is a trial, it is done on the basis of a threshold of evidence in as fair a way as possible. And I think the DPP came to the conclusion, not once, but repeatedly, and different DPPs, they changed office in between, that that just was not possible. Right. I mean, look, even Mr. Bailey wanted a trial. The, when I met him in November 2014, one of the first things he said to me was, I want a trial to clear my name. His, his partner wrote to the DPP saying that they, that they were going through hell. The only way out of that hell was a trial. Marguerite Buniel, um, and Sophie's mother, wrote to the DPP begging for a, a, a trial. Um, Pierre-Louis, um, Sophie's son, has repeatedly asked for a trial. So it's a rather odd situation where you have um, both the... Both the you know, the only suspect, you know, and, and the, the man who would be the defendant asking for a trial, his partner asking for a trial, the victim's mother asking for a trial, the victim's son asking for a trial. I think the truth is that when Bailey um, said to me that he wanted a trial, quote, to clear his name, to clear my name, was the words he used, I think there's a kind of a, an implicit understanding that there was a case, you know, was a case against him and he wanted to fight it. Um, I, I just come back to this idea of a fair trial, though. Uh, look, I really take your point, Mick. I really take your point. 
the, there was a feverish atmosphere in Skull. I wasn't there, but I mean, I, 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 I spoke to many people and I, I can absolutely understand there was a feverish atmosphere in Skull um, in the days and weeks after the murder. It was a feverish atmosphere. Um, apart from anything else, it was the first murder they'd had there in, in many generations. So this was something entirely new. Uh, it, was, um, it was something awful. Um, people were upset. But if there'd been a trial, it wouldn't have happened immediately. I mean, it, you know, it would have happened, you know, um, months and even years down the line. And so I'm, I'm not convinced that that feverish atmosphere would have, would have continued. And I do believe that the, that, the, that the machinery of the Irish state would have put on a fair trial. And I think that the jurors would have been uh, absolutely level-headed. And they looked at the evidence. They would have looked at the witnesses as well, since you brought those up. And they would have come to a conclusion. I can't predict what the conclusion is not for me to say what that conclusion is to be. It's for, it's for, it's for an Irish court to, to, to come to a conclusion. It's, not, it's none of my business. But, but there should have been a trial. There simply should have been a trial. Um, again, I think we've, we're also in a position where, I, you know, I'm one of the privileged few who has access to the, to the Garda file. And, and with that privilege comes a responsibility. Where I see that something went wrong, something here did go wrong, uh, I think it's right to call it out. I think that that's my responsibility to call it out. But please understand that it's not a blanket accusation at, at the DPP. It's, it's simply on this case, it's not structural. It's not systemic. I'm not saying that things went wrong elsewhere. In no way. Um, what I am saying, though, is that in this particular case, they messed up. They made a mistake. There should have been a trial, in my view. But, I, but you know, I'm well aware of the, you know, the situations. I mean, I've read the file. I've read the file three or four times. Um, you know, I've come to that conclusion. I'm in a position of privilege because I've had the chance to, to read the file. Just one other quick point about this, because the, um, Sophie's family, as you know, set up a, a justice committee called the ASOF in Paris, and they had access to the same, the same documents. And I remember meeting them. Um, Professor Gazou, for instance, who, who often appears in the media in, in, in Ireland, uh, the, the 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 people he had around him to to look through the the file when when they got when they got their hands on it, they were they were these people were scientists. They came from the scientific engineering community, and um, they, you know, they they were people who were interested in in the detail in the detail of the file. They were absolutely interested in the detail of the file. They weren't jumping to any conclusions, and their um, view was there should be a trial because of what's in the in the Garda file. That was their view. They, it's, it's exposure to the DPP file that leads you to think, or leads me to think, certainly, and them, um, that there should have been a trial in Ireland. Yeah. Yeah, and just a couple of things, and you mentioned earlier, Nick, and I take completely, and I'm not suggesting for a second that any of the witnesses give bogus evidence or, or consciously uh, attempted to mislead anyone. I'm sure that everybody acted in good faith. I'd have to definitely say that. Now, in terms of the French, and I take your point there and, and, and their reaction to it, however, both of us attended the trial in Paris, five-day trial that was very quick. And I have to say, Nick, and I'd be interested in your opinion, in my opinion, it was a short trial. I mean, the quality of evidence there, for example, in one instance, a French detective uh, gave evidence that he was in West Cork investigating. He met a guard. The guard told him Bailey did it. This was taken as evidence. In another element of it, a friend of Sophie's who was giving evidence 20 years after the event suddenly remembered, there was some trigger she suggested, but suddenly remembered that a few days before she was murdered she told this friend that she'd met an English poet which would suggest that contrary to what Bailey said that Bailey actually knew her. And you had other stuff like a psychologist who gave an opinion that uh, Bailey had a borderline personality and he did this even though he never even met Bailey, not to mind interviewed him. The attitude to the witnesses, uh, their witness uh, list, two of the people on it were dead. They hadn't even checked that. Another was unfortunately suffering from dementia. They gave the witnesses a couple of weeks to come over and ask them to sort themselves out and they'd be reimbursed after. And to me, the whole thing just had the character of we're going through the motions here in order to call him a convicted murderer, put in another extradition application, and that's it. And if anything, I would suggest that was a miscarriage of justice. Well, look, um, 
I agree with you on, on, on several points there. And I must say, I've never come across a single person in Ireland who, even people who, who take my position on, on the evidence against, against Bailey, I've never come, come across a single Irish person who thought that that trial was satisfactory in any sense, either in, the, in its format or in the idea that, that the crime on, on, on Irish soil should be, should be tried in a, in a foreign jurisdiction. I'm, I'm entirely with you. I mean, I totally understand. I totally get it. Um, and I uh, understand as well the detail of, of the criticisms that you're making, Mick, uh, about the trial. Um, it seems strange, for instance, that we heard about that um, we heard about that confession that Bailey made to the 14 year old boy from his mother. I mean, that's no, no criticism, of course, of his mother who, who, who went over and, and did what she could. But it's 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 unsatisfactory for that evidence to to be presented in that way. Um, as as for the psychological uh, assessments of Bailey that were that were drawn up by people who hadn't hadn't met him, I mean that that speaks for itself. I don't think I need to say much more about that. Uh, the way in which we've already we've already touched on the way in which Marie Farrell's uh, initial evidence, if I can put it like that, was was yeah. taken as being um, uh, useful and, 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 and treatable in court. Um, yeah, I mean I could go on. There were there were. There were lots of problems. I, I don't think I would uh, term yeah. it a show trial. I think, look, I think that they do things differently in foreign countries, right? Um, that th- This was not, as you know, I mean, it, it wasn't a representative uh, murder trial in any sense at all in France. Fundamentally because Bailey wasn't there. They didn't have a defendant. Therefore, they didn't have um, the defence that the, the Bailey had would have had the chance to, uh, to, to, to put forward. So it was a kind of a prosecution-only trial. And... Um, you remember, I think, you know, we, we had the chance to speak to representatives of the courthouse just before the trial started. And I was, I, I, you know, I went up to the guy and said, look, you know, um, tell me, I mean, how many trials do you have in absentia in France? He said, almost none, almost none. Very, very rare cases. Uh, had, yeah. had there been a second trial, Bailey would have had, had a jury over there. I mean, it, 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 the configuration of that, of that trial was to do with the fact that they knew that, that they weren't going to get Bailey there to answer questions. They knew that he wouldn't be present. So I think, yeah. you know, I, I, I do get it. Um, I, I share a lot of your misgivings. I really do. What I can say is, though, at the end, the, the, as you remember, the French prosecutor said that the evidence against Bailey was overwhelming. By that, I'm, I, I understood that to, to mean the kind of evidence that was the evidence that was there in the, in, 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 in the, in the Garda file, not the, let's say, additional things that came up solely uh, in the Paris courtroom, including the rather late in the day recollection by one of Sophie's friends that, that, you know, I mean, I think we can, I think we can safely, I think we can safely park those things and, and, uh, and come back to the Garda file and the significant amounts of evidence that was in the Garda file that would have been the uh, cornerstone of a trial in Ireland. Okay. Um, yeah, and look, it has to be said, and, and lest anybody think taking a position of defending Ian Bailey's character or anything, I'm doing absolutely nothing of the sort. He, he was, there were aspects to the man that were deeply unpleasant, and one of the most harrowing things I heard over the course of all of this was in the 2003 libel trial, the evidence that was given of by a third party of the extent of the injuries inflicted on Jules Thomas by Bailey one night he attacked her was absolutely harrowing by all accounts. But that of itself is a different matter as to whether or not he should have been put on yeah, trial I here. Could I just say, um, yeah, can Nick, I just say finally, that? I don't think he should have been put on trial yeah. for, for that reason. I, I, I come back to the file, you know. But oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm yeah, not sure, suggesting I, I know, do. but uh, no, again, no. I mean, I, I feel, I feel I even have to uh, you know, kind of jump in sometimes and, 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 and defend his right to be, let's say, um, tried or the... Or, the view that he should be tried on the evidence that's there in the God, oh, in the God of Fire. I get it. And, and the piece, your piece in the paper this week, I found was really, really, really interesting. And I, I, I learned something about the point that you made, and you made it just, just a few minutes ago, that the Irish state would have been, you know, happy to see Bailey put on trial um, short months or within a year or two after, after the murder, it would have suited the Irish state. And, and, and I mean, I understand your, your point that the DPP's um, independence is underscored by the fact that it decided that there wasn't, there wasn't grounds to, to um, put, put Bailey on trial. Yeah, I get that. I mean, um, 
in the end, what looms very large for, uh, um, to me again is the is the contents of the Garda file. It really, it really is. It's 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 so it 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 provides so much evidence that that Bailey did it, and Bailey should have had the chance to defend himself in an Irish courtroom. Right. No, and I, I only I, I mentioned everything just in terms of as far as I was concerned, it went to his character and nothing to do with whether or not he had any responsibility for for this particular murder. Nick, finally, at this stage, do you see anything possibly emerging that would either point to um conclusively to the well, conclusively it won't, but anything significant that might point further to Bailey's guilt are the alternative possibility that um, there may have been somebody else involved. Do you see anything else emerging at this very late stage? No, look, uh, can I just maybe um, deal with the question of somebody else involved? I mean, in, you know, it's uh, Bailey himself within a few short days of the uh, of the crime put out the theory that there was a, uh, quote, French connection, that, that a killer had come over from France and did it. And can I can I just um, refute that um, in very clear terms? Uh, the first thing to say is yeah. um, that this last visit that Sophie made to Ireland was the very first time that she travelled on her own. So I calculate that she went to the house until more, perhaps ten times, twelve times since she, uh, you know, from the time she bought it. This was the very first time that she travelled there alone. It's funny, really, because sometimes she's portrayed as being kind of a, after the murder she portrayed in the, in the press sometimes, as being a kind of fairly solitary character. You know, she'd go to uh, West Cork to kind of connect with her muse or something like that. She enjoyed uh, being on her own. And, and that's not the case. But it's important in this, in, in this connection. So this was the very first time she travelled there alone. How could... How could a hitman have known that? How could somebody contracting hitman have known that? Her visit was mm. planned only three or four days in advance. She had a business class ticket, you know, so she could have gone, you know, at any time or not gone at all. Um, so again, how could that have been organised? How would anybody have, have, uh, of, of set up that hit? Then you come to the murder weapon. I mean, what kind of, what kind of hitman uh, rocks up at the house of the target and no word of murder weapon. He simply looks down on the ground and, oh, there's a rock. I'll use that and I'll bash in the head of my victim 50 times. I mean, it, it doesn't happen like that. And finally, and finally, there was no motive at all. There was no motive at all for, for instance, Daniel Toscan Duplantier to, to murder his wife. The, uh, the Bunyols, um, Sophie's parents, thought that patently absurd. So we can, we can park that idea that somebody came over in France and we can dismiss it out of hand. Anybody else? Anybody else in Ireland? Anybody else in West Cork? No, there weren't any other suspects. So again, the, the, all of this points in one direction. Bailey should have been put, in, put on trial. Now what can be done? Not much. The, um, the, the, the trial in Paris that we were talking about, you know, that was ultimately a very hollow victory for Sophie's son. A very hollow victory for Sophie, Sophie's son. Um, Bailey wasn't extradited on the foot of that. Um, now, nothing at all, I'm afraid, can be done. I think that, you know, um, the chance has been missed. Years and years have gone by. The trial should have happened in, uh, in Ireland. Um, ultimately, I think, you know, the, the, the documentaries, the books on the case, they all happened because, the, the, you know, the, 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 there was something there. You know, there was something there that needed to be uh, decided transparently in a, in a courtroom in, 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 in Ireland. And now we're kind of just left with the, what are we left with? I mean, there's no defendant to, 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 to you know, to, to, to take the stand. The Bailey's not here. Yeah. Um, there's, there's nobody else. As far as I'm concerned, the, the Garda cold case team, I mean, you know, didn't they pack up on, on Monday already and, and go home? I mean, there's nothing more for them to do. I think that the, the chance was missed. It's, it's a crying shame. Yeah. It's a crying shame for Sophie's family that the chance was missed. They haven't been given justice, you know. They haven't. They haven't got justice. And, and can you? I mean, just think about it for a minute. I mean, all these years ago, every single day, we're talking about thousands upon thousands of days. Those poor, those poor elderly people, Sophie's parents, have woken up in the morning knowing that their that their beloved daughter is no longer there, but also knowing that she was murdered. Daniel Toscan Duplantier called it a double death 
in an interview with a French magazine, he said, it, it's one thing. It's one thing to lose your wife, to lose somebody you love, for, for her not to be here anymore. But it's a double death when you know that somebody wanted to wipe her off the face of the earth. It's a double death. He never came to terms with it. They never came to yeah. terms with it. Pierre Louis, in a, you know, he's a, he's a middle-aged man. He, he, you know, he was a teenager when, when, when his mother was murdered. He hasn't come to terms with it. He called, he called the murder of his mother a handicap. He said, it's always with me. And I saw it. I mean, I, I could see how much it, it, it affected him. But remember this, it affected him and it affects him every single day of his life. The same for the parents. And I'm not suggesting, clearly, there's, there's no way of bringing Sophie back, but they needed to have the chance for closure that a trial would have, a trial in Ireland would have given them. Yes, very understandable. And you make a very valid point, Nick. The most important people in this are Sophie Tuscan Duplantier's family, um, Jean-Pierre, her son, the, the one saving Grace, as far as I was concerned, at the trial in Paris, he gave some of the most moving testimony I've ever heard from a victim in terms of the impact it had. You look at the stolen decades from that poor woman that, that, that she was robbed of by whomever murdered her and their family. There's absolutely no doubt they, they are the victims in the whole affair. And it, as you say, it seems unlikely there's going to be some conclusive outcome at this stage. Um, Nick Foster, thank you very much for joining us today. Murder at Roaring Water, the inside story of the death of Sophie Tuscan Duplantier is Nick's book. And Nick, thanks very much for a very um, very informative conversation. Thanks, Nick. Thanks very much. Big great being with you. As always, I'd like to thank our engineer, JJ Vernon. Thank you, folks, for listening. Hang in there. We'll be back with you again next week. On Formative, middle school kids from New York City public schools interview a phenomenal collection of grown-ups. Me, like, I don't know what I want to do. You don't have to have all the answers. I feel like a lot of people's favorite topics are, like, interest in their life. That is a really good answer. The podcast where the leaders of today are interviewed by leaders of tomorrow. Listen now at newyorkedge.org slash formative or wherever you get your podcasts.